Hey everybody, welcome to the conversation with St. Patrick's Studio. My name is Brian Cannon. I'm the Director of Evangelization and Adult Formation here at St. Patrick Catholic Community. We have the honor today of being joined by Sister Helen Prejean, who is known around the world for her tireless work against the death penalty. She has been instrumental in sparking national dialogue on capital punishment and shaping the Catholic Church's vigorous opposition to all executions. She joined the Sisters of St. Joseph in 1957, and she's the author of three books, The Death of Innocence, an Eyewitness Account of Wrongful Executions, River of Fire, My Spiritual Journey, which we'll be talking a little bit about today, and of course, Dead Man Walking, an Eyewitness Account to the Death Penalty in the United States, which was developed into a major motion picture. She comes to us from the great state of Louisiana, where she continues her work with her ministry against the death penalty. Sister Helen, welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Really, really great to be with you. Now, just to kind of get the ball rolling, I think that one of the things that those of us who oppose the death penalty often encounter is that this condemned person has potentially done some absolutely vile things and that advocating for such a life uh, of such a person maybe amounts to a slap in the face to victims or that the dignity being upheld is somehow undeserved. When you have those conversations with people, particularly with, with Catholics who wrestle with the death penalty, what do you say to people like that? Okay, so enter now, let us enter into the dialogue that's been going on in the Catholic Church for over 1600 years on the death penalty. So that little statement you made that has helped to shape Catholic teaching on the death penalty that has happened through conversations over these 25 plus years. Talking to people like you, going into parishes to speak, to talk about the experiences of being with someone who had done a truly horrific crime of the taking of human life, then being there at the execution. So I think it would be really helpful if we together can trace the steps that have been in traditional Catholic teaching and how things have changed. Uh, uh, two years ago when Pope Francis finally crystallized it in the Catholic Catechism, where under no circumstances can we support the government's right to take life, no matter how grave the crime. So you got 1600 years of dialogue to come to that position under no you know, conditions, can they, because all the bishop's statements all along during the dialogue always would get to this point of the right of the state to take life. So Brian, just to get you in on this too with me, why do you think that is? Why do you think the church upheld that for so long? The, what's the history? What's the history? I think when church governance and political governance are so deeply entwined when when the monarchies and the the uh, diocese and all of those things are so dependent on each other um you create a untenable situation in regards to capital punishment yeah untenable in terms of the gospel mandate which is of course clearly jesus would not sanction the taking deliberate taking of human life for whatever reason so we haven't been in kilter and this is the story of us as a church we're pilgrim 
people, as it was said in, in Vatican II. We, uh, we're always growing toward things. So here's what I kept finding uh, when I would meet Catholics who say they're pro-life, but they would draw a line in the sand. I'm pro-innocent life. I don't believe we should take innocent life. So you have Catholics being really strong on being against abortion, taking an innocent life. But when it came to guilty people, there was a distinction. They did the crime. They crossed the line. Sometimes you hear prosecutors say they put themselves on that lethal injection gurney by their crime. And by doing that crime, they no longer deserve life. And we who keep ordering society are going to take that life. And you're so right. Long time going way back to monarchies, going back to when you don't have prisons. Societies didn't have a way to, in, you know, to, you know, to get or to render violent people so that society could be protected. There were no prisons. So the state could come in and it was harsh and violent. You take life, we take your life to protect society. And that's crucial because it was always about defending society. What are you conscious of in the political rhetoric of the way the death penalty has been justified in modern times? What did we hear prosecutors say? And what have we heard people running for office say in terms of why the death penalty would be justified sometimes? Well, they'll hold up, hold up the idea of deterrence, I think. <clears throat> deterrence was in there. What could be a better deterrent, right? That, wait, maybe I can't kill this person or the witnesses because I could lose my own life. Self-preservation, deterrence. What else? This is great. Uh, not to put you on the spot. Yeah, uh, no, this is uh, not John. expected. I've got a whole list of questions here, and none of them have answers. <laughs> no, well, but I, mean, I think just the idea of justice as well. So the yeah. only thing that could be commensurate in terms of justice with the taking of the life would be a losing of a life, an eye for an eye. Okay. But politicians, big time, we're going to be tough on crime. Right. They would run for political office tough on crime. In Louisiana, you had people running for office, prosecutors going for a higher office saying, look at so-and-so is weak on crime. They're against the death penalty. I'm tough on crime, which means I'm for the safety of the people. And what went with that, Brian, was they so demonized people who had committed murder that they were unredeemable. They were so evil that you couldn't trust putting them in prison because they'll kill other inmates. These people in their character and by what they've done, so they were so demonized and tough on crime. It's only recently, within the last five or so years, switched to smart on crime. But that was the political currency. And you, we work in, in political currency. That's what, and people are made to be afraid. So that held for all this time. So here we enter into dialogue. In Death of Innocence, I got to have a direct dialogue with Pope John Paul II. He preceded the direct dialogue with Pope Francis, where Pope Francis actually intervened in trying to help save the life of an innocent man, Richard Glossop. So Pope John Paul had come to the United States several times, and those of us working against the death penalty, he would never include in his pro-life message the death penalty. We were trying to get to him when he came to Colorado. We were trying to get to him when he came to the, please, your holiness, include in the pro-life that we shouldn't execute human beings. 
nothing, nothing, nothing. Until, and in Death of Innocence, I tell the story of this man, Joseph Odell, in Virginia, uh, an innocent person, I believe, I tell his story. The Italians got involved in his case, and the Pope, Pope John Paul heard about it, and I got to have a direct letter to Pope John Paul. And here was the crucial Catholic question that I praised to him. And I'm going to let you see what you, you think he did in response. Hey, everybody in the parish, this is Brian on the spot. He oh, thinks man. he's interviewing me, man. I'm getting him. I'm getting him. I should have known better than to have a conversation with a sister on Zoom. <laughs> So anyway, here's what I said. I said, your holiness, when I'm walking with a man to execution, and I was thinking of Pat Sonia, he's the first story in Demi Walk. And I said, his legs are shackled with leg irons, his hands are shackled, are handcuffed to a belt around his waist very tight. He's surrounded by six guards. He's being walked across a hall where he's gonna be strapped into the electric chair and he's going to be killed for his crime. And he kind of turns to me as we begin to walk, and he says to me, Sister, please pray that God holds up my legs when I walk. And I said to the Holy Father, I said, Your Holiness, where is the dignity in this death of a man being rendered completely defenseless and killed? And I had in the back of my mind, the church had always upheld the death penalty to defend life. And since we have prisons, and the Pope himself had been saying, moving toward the end of the death penalty, because we have a way to keep society safe. And I said, is it only innocent life that we uphold the dignity? What about the guilty? Where is the dignity in strapping a human being down and deliberately killing him? That's what I said in the letter. The letter went over, this is pure Holy Spirit action, okay? The letter went right into the lap of the Pope, right as he was looking at the catechism in 1997. They were looking at the Latin version, the definitive version that was gonna, and it was gonna hold until the Pope changed it in 2018. And my letter got right in that interim time when the Pope was looking at it. And, and then they announced there was going to be a delay in the publication of the catechism because of the issue of the death penalty. Now, I'm not saying it was a one-on-one -on -one thing of me. We always work in community. I think of when a pot boils, the bubbles are rising up all over the place, and there was great dialogue going on within the Catholic Church about the death penalty. I was one little bubble in that pot. But the delay, so then I go, what, what, what is it going to be? And so then when they did come out with the teaching in the catechism, they had moved the death penalty way over, almost, I said, they're going to do it. They're going to do it in principle, you know, against the death penalty in every instance, no exceptions. But in the, the Pope left a big old exception, a big loophole. And my heart sank when I read it. And it said, except in cases of absolute gravity, the state may still execute. And then I knew all was lost because, uh, no, that had happened earlier, actually, in the, in the 
the catechism before, and part of my dialogue with the Pope was, your words are going to be quoted by DAs, and the DA in New Orleans, Harry Connick Sr., quoted those words. We only give the death penalty. We don't give it except in cases of absolute necessity. And sure enough, because as long as you give the state the, you know, that they can have the right to decide that there are some crimes for which you can give the death penalty, we're always going to have the death penalty. I mean, and you have countries where for homosexuality, you get the death penalty or for, for us, it used to be for rape, for murder, whatever. And so when the Pope came to St. Louis after the, the letter, for the first time, he put the death penalty up with the other pro-life issues. There was a journalist standing in St. Louis in 99 when the Pope gave his address to this big crowd and the journalist told me, sister, I was there. There was great applause when the Pope said no to abortion, no to physician-assisted suicide. But then when he said, and no to the death penalty, the clapping dropped off. They had never heard it before. When he said no to the death penalty, this is in St. Louis, 1999, Pope John Paul II, no to the death penalty because it is cruel, Interesting, he acknowledges the cruelty or torture of the death penalty. Our Supreme Court will not recognize that taking a conscious, imaginative human being and killing them while they wait out the hours until their death does not acknowledge torture yet because that dialogue is still going on and needs to go on. No to the death penalty because it's cruel and unnecessary and the added and even those among us who have done a terrible crime have a dignity that must not be taken from them. But you can see in this, it's a journey for people. It's one thing to be for the dignity of innocent life, but to go for a murderer? And then you brought up the victims. What can help victims? And if you've ever been to a death penalty trial, I have. In Arizona, you have the death penalty. I mean, you have a harsh tough, tough on crime kind of political mentality in your state. And you hear the prosecutors say to the jury, now they have to vote unanimously to take this person's life. And you have the prosecutor then point to that victim's family and say, justice for this victim's family. If you had a child kill, what would be justice for you? We owe it to them. That, that they will be allowed to sit and witness as we take the life of the one who killed their loved one's life and justice for the victim's family. So as we come along in our experience here, all these years now with victims' families, what is the reason in 19, it was 11 years ago, when the New Jersey legislature was looking to abolish the death penalty, to repeal it on the books, 62 murder victims' families testified saying, don't kill for us. And why were they saying that? Because their experience had been that the death penalty re-victimizes them. First of all, it puts them in a very public place in their grief. As long as a person has a death sentence, every time there's a change in the status of a case, they, there's the media at the, at the victim's door again saying, what do you think? He got a new stay of execution or he got, the, 
and they can't grieve. How can they grieve? I gave a talk in Sensi one time in a church, in a Catholic church, and a woman came up to the mic during the Q&A time, and she said, we had a family member murdered, and I don't know how I feel about the death penalty. I'm ambivalent about it, but I can tell you this. We don't have a private place to grieve. Our grief is very public. We just need it to go away. And you had more and more victims' families saying, if the person got a life sentence and disappeared behind prison walls, we never heard about them again. We, we need to get on with our lives. We need to heal. We need to move on into life. And they keep, it's like it freeze frames them into this whole thing of the person who did the crime and whether or not he'll be executed. So we have a lot of experience now with victims' families. And we have wonderful saints holding up to us like Lloyd de Blanc in Dead Man Walking. I'm the storyteller. I'm not the hero in, the, in telling the story. I made a mistake in not reaching out to victims' families at first because I didn't know what to do with them, and I was scared. And, and he's the one who really taught me. His son, David, was murdered just 17 years old. He was murdered uh, with his girlfriend and um, 17. And here's Lloyd de Blanc, the father, having to deal with this. And his path, really, he's the one that we really need to hold up. He's deeply Catholic, Mass every Sunday. Uh, and when they brought him in to the morgue to identify David's body, the prayer that rose to his lips, it just came out, he said. He didn't think about this ahead of time. Our Father, who art in heaven. And he said the Our Father over the body of his dead son. And when the words in the Our Father emerged, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive. He said, sister, I said the words, but I couldn't feel the words. And he, had, he went through this time of who wouldn't, intense anger that all he wanted to do was get even. And then in explaining his journey to me, because he said most people think forgiveness is weakness. It means well, you kill my son, but it's okay like you're condoning it. But he kept dealing with this anger, and then he's snapping at his wife and making her cry. He's angry all the time. And when he told me this, Brian, and he, he came to a point, and he put his hand up like this. And he said, I said, uh-uh. They killed my boy, but I'm not going to let them kill me. Because that anger was killing him. He said, that's not who I am. I'm a Catholic man. I'm a Christian man. I believe in being kind to people. And he was losing it. And he's the first one who taught me what forgiveness, even when you look at the word, to give before, forgive, really means not letting that hate be take over you so that you lose your life too. You give before. Okay, you kill my son. I'm grieving that, but I'm not going to let that hatred. And he taught me the real meaning of forgiveness. There is transformation, I think, in a lot of people's hearts when it comes to the death penalty. And, and maybe that's even true for victims' families where they go through a, a transformation in their heart. It's true for our church that you've described, this movement forward, this, this development. And you've now had the ear of 
as you described, two popes and John Paul II moved the ball forward. Mm -hmm, um, Pope Francis, as we are aware, recently amended the um, Catechism of the Catholic Church to describe the death penalty as inadmissible. Under and all now, conditions, yes. So, sister, if you get the ear of the next pope, what will you say to him? Well, first of all, I don't bank on talking to popes. <laughs> Vatican II taught us the church is the people of God, okay? I talk to the people like you and me in your parish in St. Pat's. This is where the gospel lives. This is where the soil is. This is where the wheat of the gospel grows. Yeah. This is the real thing. So I got to tell you that, Pat. I don't bank on talking to popes. <laughs> Here's the big thing, though. It's one thing to change a document. So, okay, so it's changed in the catechism under no conditions. Do we accept? Only 12.7% of Catholics are living out of that change in the catechism. Yeah. You talk to people, I'll bet you you talk to people in your parish. Where are you on the death penalty? And see, it's a real human thing. There's that deep ambivalence in us because we're outraged over the death of innocent people. And that outrage, we want it to be expressed in some way that they deserve to die. But here's the moral question, who deserves to kill them? And I, in Debbie Walken, I tell the story to guards who have to do the killing for us. Like Sergeant Cootie, who called me in his office after he had participated in five executions. He said, sister, I know their crimes. I know all their crimes, their murders are terrible. But believe me, I come home after these executions and I've participated and killing somebody who was defenseless. And I get in my lazy boy chair and I can't sleep and I can't eat. I, I'm, and my wife knows not to talk to me for a couple of days. We have to look into, so what does it mean now to give over this power? It's gonna come down to the guards, it's gonna come down to the warden who have to quote, do their job and do the killing for us. See, one of the reasons I, I wrote Dead Man Walking and why I stay out there talking about this issue. I know people are never going to be able to get close and see it. There have been two court cases to try to make executions public so people can see the policy in action, and they've been defeated. It's a secret ritual. Yeah. And those of us who are witnesses, and this is so true of the Christian life, we witness to grace, we witness to transformation, and we got to be the ones to tell the story. So the way I wrote Dead Man Walking and the way Tim Robbins has constructed the film of Dead Man Walking, we take people deeply into their ambivalence, horror at the crime, outrage at the crime, and that part of us that says, bring on justice, which means he took a life, he deserves to lose his life. And then to make our way down that gospel road over to a place where is this what it means for us as a society? Now we're going to imitate the worst possible behavior of people. We're going to make it legal. Sometimes you even hear the quotation that, well, if Jesus hadn't been crucified for our sins and executed for our sins, we wouldn't be saved. Then you got to look at what kind of image of God is that? That whole punishment thing, where did we get that, Brian? Where did we get that thing that you have to have pain and punishment for your sins? Where did that come from? Garden of Eden, I think. <laughs> it is the starting point, I think. Because they punish, so punishment. 
And, and so we just now, again, little weeds beginning to come up. I mean, wheat springing up in the soil. Restorative justice. Instead of just throwing people in prison, even if you're not taking their life mm-hmm. by executing them, you're taking their life by throwing them away in prison for the rest of their life. Restorative justice to restore life instead of adding pain on pain. And Pope Francis is beautiful about this. What is beautiful about this, he's bringing us to the gospel. Now, sister, your story does not begin at Dead Man Walking. You, um, you said that initially your tug to become religious was grounded in a desire to be a contemplative. Um, so how does that orientation towards contemplative life impact the work that you do on death row. And, and I think this kind of gets into your latest work of, of River of Fire too. So where does that work come from? Because if I'm not mistaken, that's kind of like the prequel, right? To, to your work in Dead Man Walking. So take us through that journey a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, that journey, that contemplation at the heart of action preceded my talking to you today. It starts every day. God, what is it today? Where's the grace movement today? And so I tell the story in River of Fire, starting out Catholic kid, great Catholic family, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Ironically, living in Baton Rouge during the Jim Crow era, we had black servants who worked for us, who lived in a servant's quarters in the back of the big house, couldn't eat with us, couldn't use the toilet in our house. And and mom and daddy were kind to them. And daddy even helped Ellen and Jesse. I don't even know their last names. Buy a house, help Jesse get a good job at the refinery. But never question the injustice of the Jim Crow and the indignity. It's part of culture. You grow up. We grow up in a culture. There's a culture around us. The way we see things, the way we hear things. Even Brian in Sacred Heart Church, where I made my first communion, black kids couldn't make their first communion with us white kids. Black people had to sit in a different part of church. Now here we are, the body of Christ, but we're deeply influenced by culture. And we are in a lot of ways on the issues going on today in this country. And you look at the cultural impact on on those of us that attend mass on Sunday, how we feel about crime, how we feel about law and order, how we feel about what we need to do in this country, what we, how we feel about taxes, how we feel about, it all impacts us. And I was unawake, but I had a good heart and I could grow and I did. So then when I joined the sisters, I had to break out of that spiritual cocoon. Yes, I did want to be contemplative. Yes, I wanted to be a holy saint. If possible, I wouldn't mind having a low ecstasy in my prayer like Teresa of Avila, you know, a little levitation, you know. Never uh, heard anything. I want to be a holy nun. And yeah. I thought the way you do that is for prayer. And what's the whole relationship to the world? Pray for the world and the suffering people in the world. But I was not rolling up my sleeves and I was not getting engaged with the big social issues of the day. And that's a big awakening in River of Fire. It's called the lightning chapter. How lightning comes down and how it returns. And we went to a conference. Our sisters went to a conference. Nuns are always going to conferences. It was one more conference. It's all true. It's all true. Catholics go to conferences. You, Brian. Almost a conference, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) Because we're always meeting and discerning. It's what community is, you know. 
And I wasn't excited about the nun who was going to talk at this conference. Her name was Sister Marie Augusta Neal, and she was all into this social justice stuff. I'm thinking we nuns, we're not social workers. You know, we pray for the world. We help people to find God. If the poor have God, they have everything. I don't know any poor people. I live in New Orleans, 10 major housing projects of black people being beaten up by the police on a pitiful welfare check, school's terrible condition. I know nothing. It's, it could have been in another country. And the wake up call of grace, and I, here's my big thing about grace. We really can't wake ourselves up. It takes grace to wake us up. That moment of transformative, ah, this is what the gospel means. And it's calling me, that's grace. And when she said, Jesus preached good news to the poor, I thought I knew the next line coming. And it was how beloved you are of God in heaven, you will have a higher place, uh, be a big, bigger jewels in your crown. And she said, integral to good news to poor people was that they would be poor no longer. And Jesus's way that is, which was followed in the early Christian life, it was simply called the way of Jesus, was that community of love would restore justice to people. That it was not God's will for some people to be rich and some people to be poor. So those of you that have means, be charitable. When the basket's passed around, be charitable to people who are poor. But it takes more than charity. Charity is injustice. This was the big breakthrough of grace for me, see? Because I thought as long as I was praying for people and loving the kids I was teaching and, and all that, being kind, I, but suddenly I got it. It's just like, that's not God's will that they're poor. And what am I doing? And that's what led me then, and that's in, the, in some of the closing chapters of, Dead, of uh, River of Fire. I went and lived among poor people in New Orleans, and they became my teachers. And now that we as a country are waking up, white people especially waking up, that it's not a few bad policemen every now and then who treat black people mean. It's systemic in a whole system that has been happening, and it's really part of the legacy of slavery. So we, as white privileged people who have never had to be so afraid when a policeman stops us, as black people, it's a whole learning thing. And you know, Vatican II said, open the doors of the church, open the windows to look into the times to become a part of it, to read the signs of the times where God is moving across the land. And I want to say where we see movement of God's spirit now is this waking up to the deep systemic racism and our own white privilege, because we never have had to suffer it. So we go, what's the big deal? Slavery's over a long time ago. Why don't these people get a job? Why don't they send their kids to school? Don't they know that education's the way? And we're from that privileged vantage point of then saying to people, why don't y'all do this, this, and this? Slavery's long over. So transformation, and here's the gift of belonging to a parish. Here's the gift of belonging to an adult education group. 
we learn in community and we learn together. If I hadn't been in community with the Sisters of St. Joseph, if I hadn't gone to that conference, if I hadn't had the sisters be with me in all my growing up years until I could become formed as a person and mature enough to be able to handle getting involved with executions and thrown into the public domain and the controversy and all. If I hadn't had that deep maturity under me of the prayer life, the community solidarity and the learning, I could never have handled all this. In the cycle of contemplation and action and coming back to prayer and contemplation, then moving again into action. I think for some of us as disciples, we may feel a strength in prayer life, but maybe don't know how to translate that prayer life into action. Or we might be doers. We might go, we might see a problem and, and desire to go fix it, but, but don't have the reflective piece. How do we develop a strong relationship between contemplation and action? What's going on in your parish? Tell people do this. How, how's, it, how, how's it operate? People just go to mass on Sunday and that's it. What else is happening in your parish? We are a hopping community. So we, we are all about, <laughs> we are movers and shakers. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we have strong social justice outreach. We have strong prayer. And so all of those things. Wait, um, I want to hear about the strong prayer. I want to hear about what's the strong prayer that feeds the social justice. Just to explain to me, how is it connected? Sure. So we, um, I think in all of the ministries that we have, because you can have a million ministries, and we, we do. All of our ministries are constantly being reminded to bring back into prayer that which they do. And so there's a variety of resources we do, but it, it starts in liturgy for us, too. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that all of those issues are celebrated and brought out in the context of the Eucharist and then sent from that into the world. So we're always trying to um, foster that um, the prayer life within those ministries in that they are small Christian communities in and of themselves, that they are yes, Christian sir. discipleship in action, right? It's not right. just a, a group of people who have a similar interest, that they are disciples that are carrying right. out. No, that's it. See, that's why I love being in, in a Catholic community. It's, But uh, any, like, for example, any groups that meet together, pray, and then dig into the issue of racism and, and its legacy to understand. We also have a strong tradition of using our minds in the Catholic Church. We have a strong intellectual, the intellectual and the spiritual. We got to understand things and what has caused things that are going on. Um, so like to read a book together, to study scripture together, see the scriptures the scriptures transform us, you know, Lexio Divina, where we not just study words, but dwell with the words and let the words, but to, to dig into stuff as well, is that present in St. Pat's? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Everything that we do rooted in scripture, reading the gospel with, through the lens of justice as a mandate, not as um, story time, you know, it's a, yeah. Sure. We're Christian yeah. disciples in mission. So yeah. to live out the gospel mandate, I think, is a, a major pillar for us in our community. Yeah. Like, you, you know, one, you know, the readings earlier in the summer, it was all about Elijah and Elisha. Yep. And the readings from there, you know. And Elijah, I was always impressed, you know, when 
he was tested and they had all the uh, prophets of Baal, you know, and he let the fire, let the fire come down and he called on God. They called on their gods and I mean, and no fire came down from heaven to light the sacrifice, right? But then he did, the fire came, man, pretty powerful stuff, right? I mean, the fire goes down, whoa. And then, you know, what happened is that this, in the story, he had all those prophets of Baal killed. He had them put to the sword. There was great violence. They all got killed for being wrong, right? And then, then he's out in the desert, of course, because Jezebel and Ahab are out to kill him. Well, they, he slaughtered. So the violence thing, and you just see he's trying to figure out now where does he go from here and where is the God calling him? And we all have that in our life. I mean, I, this is insight. How many times have I read that story of Elijah? And I thought, pretty powerful stuff. Well, he could call down the fire. What does it mean to call down the fire? And I'm, I'm reading right now another book on Pope Francis. I read everything I get my hands on. It's called Wounded Shepherd. And it's talking about how he has worked within the Roman Curia of the Catholic Church in the Vatican, where he has called, again, you know, to conversion of church leaders against clericalism and living out of their status and all. But instead of just coming into office saying, we're going to get rid of all these people that disagree with us and put in new people, he goes on retreat with members of the Curia and it's a gradual process of growing together into the gospel. And I mean, Pope Francis, he talks about the church as a field hospital among the wounded. We grow together. So I'm glad this may be virtual, but wherever there's real connection between our words and our hearts, the gospel's there. And I love doing this, Patrick. I'm glad, glad, glad to be a part of this today. And our, uh, our youth are actually going to be uh, going to the Ignatian Teaching Conference, which you're given a keynote to. So what would you say to them? What can they expect to hear from you there? I'm going to say, hey, y'all, listen up. I'm going to do a <laughs> keynote. <laughs> no, it's going to be this thing of, of, of that deep patience in us and staying in community, but how God wakes us up. And I think the best thing we can ever do with each other is not to say about a good book we read or, but just let me tell you what God did with me, where we actually give testimony because we're all groping in the dark. Some people may look at me and say, whoa, she's a finished product, man. She, she wrote a book. They did a movie. I mean, all this. We're never finished. I feel like I'm as much in the, everybody we're struggling together, but I'm going to do a precious thing that I hope I would have a chance to have each of them do it. Let me tell you what God is doing in my life. And there's a lot of darkness in our life. There's a lot of confusion. We don't know. What am I supposed to do? Look at this big racism thing now. What am I supposed to do? What does that mean, white privilege? And we all are struggling. All I'm going to do is just share my faith in a way that I hope I will have a chance from them too, in some small way to get back from them, what God's doing in them as well. That's great. And here's the last one. And this one, sister, this one's for fun. Okay, so I know. I love fun questions. Is this like a Cajun joke? Is this like a Boudreaux Thibodeau Cajun joke? I would joke? never. I would you wouldn't have a clue what a Cajun joke. No, no. no I don't even know what that means. So <laughs> you're a big movie star. Everybody knows it. And, 
so for the upcoming movie, which I'm sure will be in the works of River of Fire, you can choose any actress to play the younger sister, Helen Prejean, from any time. Well, this is a bad question. What's this your is oh, a bad a question. question? You're going to strike out on this question. The this only movie stars I know are Tim Robbins, Susan Sarandon, Sean Penn. I have very limited contact. From any era, sister, from any era, from you growing up, who, who would be the number one choice? I'm not letting you off the hook on this one. Look. Hey, did I lose you? No, I'm here. I'm listening. I'm all ears. And see, I don't want to get away from Susan because Susan's so deep and she keeps growing, see? And if you look at her face, man, she looks like me when I was younger 30 years ago. You are uh, so loyal. I think she could pull it up. I mean, I don't, I don't begin to know how to name a movie star. First of all, that there'll be a movie. You know what? <laughs> when you write a book, Brian, you just write a good book and trust that people will read it. God's grace will be there. I ain't banking on any movie about River. I won't press you any further. Susan Sarandon has the job. Thank you very much. This has been the conversation with Sister Helen Prejean. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and reflections with sure. us. Today. Happy to do it, Brian. Great. Good, wonderful questions. All the best. May God's grace continue to be ahead of you, behind you, and under you. Thank you so much, sister. God bless the ways of grace. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. This has been the conversation from St. Patrick's Studio. We'll see you next time. <laughs>